So last week, uh, kind of hit the pause button. Um, not that we've been going at a breakneck pace through Colossians, but we stopped and just looked at verse 11 and tried to understand what Paul, the Holy Spirit, your Bible is trying to tell you um, with this remark about barbarian, Scythian, Greek, slave, free, um, and and the the application that I drew was really simply that you you don't come red-handed to the cross, plead uh, guilty of sin, receive mercy, compassion, kindness, and love from the one that you sinned against. You don't do that and then esteem other people as less than you because what they look like, sound like, or where they're from. It just doesn't work. Um, what I did point out last week, though, is it's not as if we don't notice the differences between us. And I pointed this out by relating each of the categories that Paul identifies. I related them to our day and our age. Um, <clears throat> we most certainly recognize differences in one another, right? Uh, let's not pretend we don't. Um, I think it would be fair to say we often admire things that make other folks distinct from us, right? Um, we might even be curious about or like confused by or surprised by the observable differences between cultural communities within the church. However, what your Bible is telling you, at least in part, in Colossians 3.11, is that we do not segregate ourselves by those differences, by those characteristics. We don't judge one another by them because we just cannot. We simply cannot. Calvary, the place where Jesus died, removes from every Christian all doubt and confusion about his or her own worth. Because when the man who was worth more than all other men hung on that cross in my stead, and I came to believe in him for my salvation, and thereby ascertained my own worth, I forsook the right to view myself as superior to any other. Or, this is the alternative, if you want to hold your own worth, your own esteem, as greater than somebody else's, then you need to be content to be judged entirely by your own worth and your own esteem. You don't get to plead Jesus to God and plead yourself over your fellow Christians. doesn't work. I can't in the same breath say that my only hope of redemption is Jesus and in the next breath think that I'm better than you. So agree or disagree with this statement. Don't say anything until I have a chance to explain it to some of the younger people. <clears throat> but th this is the question. Agree or disagree? Identity, Christian identity, is fully defined in Christ. Christian identity is fully defined in Christ. Agree or disagree? Identity is the fact of being who or what I am. Uh, we could, or you could say it this way, that I identity is... The, the set of everything used to determine who or what I am. So your identity can be somewhat defined by your appearance. If it's distinct, uh, there are things about you that 
you know, aren't common among other people that can be an identifying char characteristic of you. For instance, uh, maybe you sustained some kind of a, an injury in junior high and now you have a patch of gray hair on the side of your head. But nobody knows why it's there. I don't know that Lee sustained an injury in junior high, but... I, okay. Uh, maybe you have no hair because... God made some heads perfect. The rest of me had to cover up. <laughs> there are things about you that are distinct that <clears throat> people will use to identify you by, but your, your ultimate identity is found in Jesus Christ. So, so listen to this. John 1.12, and I'm, I'm arguing for it, but I've asked you if you agree ahead of time. Christian identity is fully defined in Christ. John 1.12 says this. To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might come to nothing or be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 3.27 says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, are some of you from Eastern European descent, and some of you from uh, Latin America, some of you from Spain, some of you from England, some of you from Norway? Like, yes. Are there things that are different? Is there male and female? Yes. But, but what the Bible is telling you is that what Jesus has done by, by taking possession of you and calling you his own is give you an identity which stands out in front of and supersedes those characteristics by which we might make out who you are with our eyes or our ears or, God help us, our noses. 1 John 3, 1 and 2 <clears throat> says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. So the biblical principle of identity in Christ is not that we cease, it's not that we cease to be an individual when we become Christ's people, but we do not derive our value from those distinctives and characteristics that we possess as Christians. Our value comes from the fact of our belonging to him. Now this doesn't matter to you until you realize that so much of fear, so much of shame, so much of guilt has to do with where your identity is. So you hear the short, bald man that rants and raves for 40 minutes every Sunday talk about, your identity is in Christ, and you tune out. Because what difference does it make? But what I'm telling you is, that low-grade frustration that you experience as you go through life, a lot of that has its roots in this fact of identity. You are so concerned 
with people knowing the real you. Except the one that you project out into the public sphere that everybody can observe is not the real you. And so if anybody does love you, they don't love you. They love the projection of you. And if they don't love you, then you haven't even been given a fair shake because you've just projected this person out there for everybody to know. Who are you? Well, if you're in Christ, your identity is that you belong to him and he saved you from sin. So what we've said is, sorry, when I came to Christ, I had nothing which was valuable to him. Amen? I thought it would take you longer to say amen so I could take a drink. I had nothing that was valuable to him. Uh, Let's let that sink in because that's a really important doctrinal reality. You came to Jesus because he was drawing you with cords of love. And if you caught a glimpse of him with the eyes of faith, meaning you saw in the word of God exactly the way that Jesus is, the way that he's portrayed by this Holy Spirit uh, supplied didactic and narrative text, you caught a glimpse of him. You immediately knew that you could not argue for salvation based upon who you were and what you were made up of. You immediately knew that what you had to do was just plead for mercy. You didn't bring anything of value. I had no grounds on which to gain eternal life. I had no merit that I could stand on in order to be accepted by Christ. I had no possessions that I could trade for salvation either. I had only my sin and the corresponding shame and guilt. So what Christ did is he took my sin and he gave me eternal affection. Christ took my sin and he gave me his eternal life. He took my sin and he gave me eternal forgiveness. He didn't, Jesus did not put judgment and wrath from God on the back burner so that we can see how you do going forward. He took it away. He took your guilt and he made you the member of a new race. Now, that's a weird thing to say in 2023, right? Especially at a church full of mainly white people uh, in uh, <clears throat> like kind of country Nebraska. A new race. I would get nervous. But 1 Peter 2 puts it this way. In Christ, you are a new race, a chosen race. He took your shame and he made you a priest in his kingdom. A royal priesthood is what we're called. He took your guilt, your your shame, and your fear, and he made you the member of a new nation. I have a, uh, I think I'm one of three people in my entire neighborhood, well, four, because my dad flies one too, but I've got the American flag hanging out in front of my house. And I was sitting out there this morning because there was kind of a cool breeze, so I went out on the front porch and sat down to have my coffee, 
And I'm just looking at this flag hanging there, and, and I just thought, man, that used to mean so much more than it does now. Like it, 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 I'm kind of glad the weirdos have their own flag, right? So they don't have to co-opt the, the red, white, and blue. That might sound tangential, but it's not it's kind of weird to look at it and think, man, when I was a kid, that stood for like liberty and justice for all, right? The application of that, though, looked a little different in 1980 than it did in 1880, amen? Or 1780, before the Constitution was even ratified. But I'm looking at this flag and I'm thinking, my identity is, is not that I'm a member of the nation, the United States of America. My identity is I'm a member of a new nation, which God has created by gathering people from every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, and eventually we're all going to be together in glory, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, but with eyes that can see Him, right? So I fly the flag because I'm, yeah, I'm still proud to be an American, but that's not really who I am. I'm the member of a new nation. So I don't get behind all this nationalism stuff. I'm a Christian. My identity, the things by which I can determine who or what I am come from Christ's gifts, not my own qualities. And I'm telling you, there's going to be some folks like in heaven that are going to be surprised who else is there. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the call of Colossians 3.11. Here, there is not all these social, economic, political divisions. If I, if I identify primarily by the fact that I belong to Jesus and so bear his righteousness, inherit his rewards, and am increasingly like him, what do I need to see when I look across the church at another sinner? I remember there was a gal at another church that I went to who, like every couple of years, she'd have to sit in a whole new place in the sanctuary because she had gotten crossed up with whoever you know, she'd been sitting in proximity to. And I remember thinking, like, really? In Christ, we can't work that out? You got to make this big show of, I'm not sitting over there by them anymore. What is wrong with us? Thankfully, there's not space to do that here, amen? <laughs> probably, why, probably why some of you want to stay here. <clears throat> The argument of Colossians 3.11 kind of sets the table for today's passage, though, which is 12 through 14. Put on then, so it's that whole as a consequence thing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony.
So <clears throat> Paul moves back now to the language of verses 8 through 10. In 8 through 10, he says, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So I didn't say anything when it happened, but we went from the language of sin killing, put to death, therefore, that which remains of the, the earth in you. We went from the language of sin killing to the language of garment wearing. So you take this off, you put this on. Um, and Paul expands the list of garments in our passage, and he begins by making sure you know who you are. Um, how long this takes, I'm not, I'm not sure. We may not even make it to 13. We'll see. Put on then as who? So in, in John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's, let's think about that. Um, was Jesus, maybe Jesus was just being hyperbolic. Maybe he was saying, uh, speaking in extremes in order to make a point. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him suggests that the only way that your eyes of faith were opened to see and your heart was brought to life to believe Jesus Christ and the gospel, the only way that happened is the Father in heaven first had to draw you. That's what John 6, is saying. In Romans 9, 14, <coughs> excuse me, Paul says, your Bible says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, why would, why would I do this? Why would I immediately go to Romans 9, 14 after John 6, 44? Couldn't we just bask in the glow of God loved me and drew me before I even comprehended that Jesus was the Savior? Why couldn't we just relax there? Because I promise you, somebody in this room is already going, well, that doesn't seem very fair. What shall we say then? Romans 9, 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Nope. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then salvation, or it, or God showing mercy, then does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Oh, <clears throat> I know. If you're reformed enough, you're like, every time you hear Romans 9, you're like, ah. But for the, for the rest of Christianity, this is, like, this is kind of an outlier verse. This isn't something we spend a lot of time studying because the idea of holding in balance God's sovereignty and the sinner's responsibility, like it kind of boggles the mind. If God has to draw me in order for me to come to Christ, then how is it my fault if I don't come to Christ? Right? Well, he has mercy on whom he has mercy. It doesn't seem very just for him to hold me to account. Okay? What do you want to do? And some of you, I know you're here Sunday by Sunday, but like you're mostly in your phone. You're subtle about it, and I appreciate that. But believe me, I see what you're doing. 
you're not here. You don't care. You're not with us. You're doing what you want. Don't you dare accuse God of injustice. When you wind up being cast into the pit of hell on judgment day because you spent your life on earth doing exactly what you want. And if I weren't so hard-hearted, I would say things like that with like actual tears in my eyes, pleading with you to bend a knee to King Jesus. I can't make you willing. He can. If he hasn't, you'll find you're doing exactly what you want to do. He's not making you sin. He's not making you rebel. He's not making you hate the perfect Lord of glory. You are doing that because you want to. In Acts 13, 48, the scriptures say this way, and I love it because it's narrative text, so it's telling a story. <clears throat> the Gentiles hear the gospel, and here's what it says. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What about the rest? Well, they weren't appointed to eternal life, so they didn't believe. God's got to draw them. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. God's choice then, if you are a Christian, listen, God's choice was you. Yeah. Put on then, as God's chosen ones. Wait, we're not done. What else are you? Holy and beloved. I bet we would have to get to somebody born before 1970 before we could get a couple in this room where one called the other beloved, right? It's not language we use anymore. But if you were dating in the 50s, maybe. Probably got to go back before that. Holy means set apart. Yeah? You with me? Holy means set apart. That's all that means. It's just, it's just like a nice word. It means, set, it means different. It means put aside, set apart, different. Beloved means dearly loved. Dearly loved. So you say beloved when loved just doesn't do it anymore. And we'll appreciate this more if I actually make it to 14. I don't think we will. But loved doesn't cut the mustard in the English language anymore because we love steak and we love wine and we love our morning coffee. Right? So you've got to make it, it's got to be like more than just that kind of love. Dearly loved. So you are, if you're in Christ, chosen by God. God chose you and he set you apart and he dearly loves you. That's who this text is talking to. The bent of so many Christian preachers to relentlessly beat the drum of the sinner's worth, worthlessness I just think it should be tempered a little bit. I don't disagree that God's choice of us was all mercy and grace. Look at me. Like, I, I think I'm doctrinally sound, but heretics generally do. 
right? <laughs> this isn't extra biblical. I think I'm within the bounds of Scripture when I say God's choice of us was all mercy and grace. He didn't look at me and think, you know, if I knock the rust off and replace a few parts, you'd be good as new. He didn't think that with any of To prove God doesn't look at any of us and think, eh, we could polish that up. To prove it, old people generally aren't attractive, great at sports, or anywhere near as capable as they were in their physical prime, right? They just aren't. There's things I could do when I was 20 I won't be able to do when I'm 65, 70. It's just reality. There's already things I could do when I was 20 that I can't do at 43, like have a full head of hair. It's not in the cards. So this situation's not improving, right? And part of the reason that it's not, in spite of my joke earlier about perfect heads, part of the reason that it's not improving is because I needed additional constant reminders for my heart that, that my identity and my life is not about my glory. So, the cause of your salvation was certainly not your worthiness or your potential worthiness, but what's the effect of God's choice of you? Let me say that again. The cause of your salvation was not your worthiness, nor was it your potential. But what is the effect of God's choice of you? Holy, set apart, beloved, dearly loved. I would argue that you can either be worthless or you can be holy and beloved. You can't be both. It doesn't work. God's choosing of me gave me worth where I had none to entice him before that. When Lisa and I got together and <clears throat> like the word got out that we were engaged, Ex-girlfriends that I hadn't heard from in some time came out of the woodwork because her choice of me gave me worth that I didn't have in their eyes before that. God's choice of you gave you worth. You are not worthless. Your worth is not in what you own, nor in the skill of flesh and bone. But Jesus Christ loved you. If God loves something, doesn't that make it worth something? So now I'm holy and dearly loved and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Having established your identity, we can now move on to how we conduct ourselves. And it's worth noting that none of this is really going to happen in your basement by yourself. <coughs> So compassionate hearts. That's the first thing we're supposed to put on. Um, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. I heard a story. I don't know if it's true or not. It's probably more of like a fable, um, but I, I like it because it's a little bit of Americana, right? There's a young man um, on a bus full of people, and he's sitting by the window on the westward-looking side of the bus as it travels south. And he's looking out the window, and there's a passenger <clears throat> across the aisle 
looking, you know, also out the westward facing window and notices that this young man seems troubled. So the passenger moves across the aisle and sits down next to the young man and just begins to inquire, what, what's going on? What's happening? You seem troubled. And the young man begins to relate to this other passenger that, that he had been in prison for the last two years because he had broken the law. He had committed a crime that was relatively uh, notorious and brought shame on his family in, in committing this crime. And so he'd gone away for two years to prison and he had written them multiple letters from prison and he had gotten no response at all. And now he had been released from prison and he's on his way home and he's like reasoning out loud, look, my folks, my family, they're pretty poor. Um, I, I don't, wouldn't have expected them to come and visit me. Um, and not, you know, they're not like really, really literate, but they could have just written back and acknowledged that I had said something. And so my assumption is that because I've committed this crime and I brought such shame upon them in the family name that they probably don't want anything to do with me. So I wrote them one last letter and I just said, look, I'm getting out. I'm coming home. I'll be there sometime in this week. And, and, I don't want to put any undue burden on you. So if you would rather have nothing to do with me, uh, I would understand. But if you want me to come home, then here's what I would ask. On the square in town where we used to picnic is that oak tree. Would you just tie a white ribbon so that I'll, I'll see it and I'll know that you want me to come back home. But if you don't, I understand. So they're pulling into this town and the young man starts to tremble, and he, he doesn't really know, frankly, if he's got what it takes to even look out the window. And the passenger that's been talking with him realizes what's going on and says, look, do you want me, do you want me to switch seats with you? And I'll watch, and I'll let you know, so you don't have to look. I'll let you know when the tree comes into view. And he's like, so he's so relieved and thankful. And he goes, yeah, because I just don't think my heart can take it. And so they switch seats and the passenger is staring out the window as they come into town and the passenger sees the tree. And the passenger begins to weep and says to the young man, it's okay. The tree is covered in ribbons. Now, I think you see compassion kind of in four places in that story. Number one, the convict's willingness to put his own preferences aside and be rejected by his family, recognizing that he hasn't done anything to earn their love, right? So he gives them the opportunity to say, just pass on through, don't stop. That's an act of compassion. The recognition from you of your own unworthiness is sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do. It may not be right in every case, but it is compassionate. Second, the passenger's willingness to look when the convict could not. Third, the passenger's tears of joy when they see the tree and know that this stranger's hopes are being realized. And then fourth, in the family's demonstration of their longing for this young man to come home. 
<clears throat> I have more guitars than I need or probably have any right to have. Um, they all serve a distinct purpose, though. That's the only argument I can make for why I own more than one. A few of them are sitting out next to my desk in the basement. A few of them are hanging in the front room as you come into the house so that I can let everybody know. One of the things that happens when you have guitars just out is there will be... There will be concussions around the house, or there, you play some music or something. Uh, there, the, it's not uncommon for a door opening and closing upstairs to cause the guitars that are hanging on the wall in my front room to resonate. We call that sympathetic resonance. When a chord is struck on the piano and you hear the guitar humming even though its strings haven't been struck. Well, I would say in the same way, a compassionate heart resonates. It's not my strings which have been struck, but my heart resonates nonetheless because yours have. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, a compassionate heart filled with kindness. This is number two. This is the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. This is being ready to do good, especially when it's not deserved. Look, that's what Jesus did for you, right? So like we have to be that way with other people. Enough of that. Humility and meekness. Humility is not a low view of yourself. It is a right view of yourself. Remember from 2.18, um, <clears throat> let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Remember I told you Dale Ralph Davis called that scraping humility, false humility, pretend humility, projected humility. And here's what I would call you to consider. In Matthew 26.53, Jesus is being just being arrested, right? You all remember this event. Somebody whips out a sword to defend Jesus and takes off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. You remember this from the, okay? And Jesus says, um, let's not. Put your sword away. In fact, specifically what he says is, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Could Jesus have done that? Yeah. He didn't deny who he was. He didn't say, there's no point in fighting. They're going to win. He doesn't deny who he is. He doesn't weaponize who he is. So the gifts that you have, financial, intellectual, physical gifts, musical gifts, interpersonal gifts, these things should be put to use to glorify the giver rather than the receiver. You have the gift because somebody gave it to you. God gave it to you, right? Put the gift that you have to work glorifying the one who gave it to you 
It's not humility if I go, no, I really, I'm terrible at guitar. That's not humility. Whatever gifts you have that none of us know about, that's not humility. That you won't put those to work glorifying to God. Glorifying God. Unnecessary word, too. That was, that was humbling, speaking of humility. I can barely talk. Um, so, <clears throat> humility means rightly viewing yourself. So we're supposed to put on humility, but that doesn't mean project humility, even though inside, deeply, you think you're pretty awesome. It means put it on. Use your gifts to glorify God. Patience. I might be able to help you all with this. <clears throat> Lisa's laughing already. <clears throat> I'm more patient than I was 20 years ago, right? <clears throat> She's like, no, I've just given up. <clears throat> Patience bearing with one another. I mean, really, you kind of have to put those, those two together. It's not fair to take them apart because... Where do we need patience? Yeah, with each, with each other. So <clears throat> this is the capacity to accept or maybe not accept, but tolerate, delay, trouble, or suffering without getting overly angry or upset. That's patience. How are we doing? How's everybody doing with patience? Anybody here just nailing it? Because I'll sit down and you can talk. Okay. I think it's maybe, it might be the most difficult of the graces. Patience. Because it can be cultivated only exactly when it is most needed. It's not, patience isn't something you can really prepare beforehand. So here's the question, the only valuable question I know to ask when, uh, when I need patience. The, the question is this, what am I waiting for or enduring for? What am I waiting for or what am I enduring for? Because part of the reason we struggle to have patience is we aren't sure what outcome we're trying to attain. So do you have a difficult coworker, a frustrating boss, an irritating family member? Like, what outcome do you want? We don't think it that far ahead. We just go, oh, so frustrating. I guess I better just suck it up because I'm a Christian. Granted. But what outcome do you want? Because if you're just waiting, like, period, you're going to get, like, your patience will run out, probably more quickly. But when you have an end in sight, when you have a goal in sight, it gets a little easier to wait, doesn't it? Like, Christmas morning comes eventually, kids, and you get to crack all the stuff open and find out what you got, and then break it and scream at your parents. <laughs> what reason am I enduring? I think impatience is often simply the outcome of expecting miracles in the absence of hard work. When you have a child that struggles to meet the minimum of decent behavior, you, you cannot, I mean, you can, but it won't work. 
You cannot just discipline them when they get out of line. When you have a child that struggles to meet the minimum of acceptable behavior, you cannot just discipline them whenever they get out of line. You have to spend time diligently, intentionally helping them cultivate the right behavior. You have to. Otherwise, you're the worst kind of parent. Just reacting. Usually angrily. All the time. What outcome do you want? When your spouse does something that continually exasperates you, you have to communicate to either fix your expectations or theirs. Right? So, I grew up in a house where the uh, correct position for the toilet seat was down. That's how I grew up. I had a choice. When I left that house and went out to make my own, I could have made it a house where the correct position for the toilet seat is up. Some of you are like, no, you couldn't have. <laughs> I could have tried. And then what would have happened? Exasperation, frustration. Every time I go in the bathroom after she uses it, the toilet seat is down instead of up where it belongs. What's the outcome I'm going for here? Do you want to have peace and harmony and, and depth of relationship with your spouse? Maybe pick something else, a different hill to die on. Right? Other than, well, the house I grew up in, it always had to be down, so now I'm going to have a house where it's up. Not helpful. Realistic expectations will help you cultivate patience, believe it or not. Because I don't go through life demanding that the whole world mold itself to my preferences. Do you have a boss that's unrealistic? A coworker who drives you insane? have a conversation, or 20, or modify your expectations a little bit. What am I waiting for or enduring for? I'm waiting for the Biden presidency to come to an end. <laughs> Why? What difference is it going to make? Well, potentially, gas prices will go back down to something more reasonable. I don't know. It's possible. But guess what? I'm, I'm not pinning my hopes to that. We got, a, we got a church member on the school board here. I'm not pinning my hopes to that. I'm not. You know how much less frustrated and less patience it requires to go through life when your expectations are a little bit lower, a little bit more reasonable? And that has nothing to do with Lee. <laughs> I don't mean, that's not what I mean. What am I waiting for? Oh, I'm waiting to be ransomed, redeemed, delivered from this whole situation that we're in. And I'm not waiting for Trump to do it. Or DeSantis, or like whoever your favorite person is. That's not... Anyway, the beginning of solving frustrating dilemmas is to get into your own mind what you expect and see if it's reasonable. 
Oh, we're just out of time. It's too bad, too, because forgiving one another as Jesus has forgiven you and, and putting on love. It seems sinful to leave those untended, but I, I keep, we'd be here till noon, right? You're like, you don't have notes on those. Shut up. Yes, I do. <laughs> we need help to put on these graces. And, and the good news is that God does not ever instruct us to, to possess a grace that he doesn't readily provide to us. Yeah, he is all these things to us. And so we just draw from the fountain the supply that we need to be these things as we bear with one another with compassionate hearts. Let's pray.